0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a non-partisan basis. And this week we explore the history and future of the Electoral College. Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution establishes the process of presidential selection States are directed to, quote, appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors, end quote, who then cast ballots for president and vice president. In 2016, for the second time in 16 years and only the fifth time in US history, a presidential candidate won a majority of the Electoral College, but lost the popular vote. Uh, Joining me to discuss the Electoral College are two of America's leading historians and political scientists, a veritable dream team of the Electoral College, Alex Kazar is Matthew W. Sterling, Jr., Professor of History and Social Policy at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. James Caesar is Professor of Politics at the University of Virginia and a member of the National Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board. Alex, James, thank you so much for joining.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Wonderful. Well, let's jump right into the history and original understanding of the Electoral College. James, you have written... Uh, The explainer about the Electoral College, uh, which is not yet posted on the thrilling interactive constitution, but soon will be, so you can give us a preview of it. You wrote it with Jamin Raskin uh, of American University Law School, who's just been elected to Congress. And in your joint statement, you say that the Electoral College is a complex and non-uniform state-by-state process uh, designed like the U.S. Senate, which was originally composed of members chosen by state legislatures, not the people, to filter public opinion through a deliberative intermediate Institution. Tell us more about how the framers expected the Electoral College to filter public opinion and what else they were trying to achieve in setting it up.
2: Well, the first thing to note about the institution is that uh, in the national government, we really have four national institutions, not three. Presidency, Congress, court, and the uh, electoral system for selecting the president. The system was that important to the whole framework that it was put right in the Constitution and constituted a national institution. The second thing I would say about the uh, institution when you think about it today is that it was not merely an institution for the final election as we would conceive it today. It was really an institution that was to handle the whole process of selection from beginning to end which is to say in our terms winnowing or nominating deliberating about that as who would be the final candidates and then selecting the final candidates in, in most cases. So it covered the whole gamut and therefore. It's wrong to look at it merely as, as uh, dealing with the, the, the final election process. The next thing to say is that uh, there is variety or the, the state legislatures were the ones that decided how the electors were chosen, but one shouldn't think of it as being a, a non-popular uh, system, especially by the standards of the time. In fact, the state legislators could decide uh, the way in which the electors would be chosen, sometimes it could be done by popular vote, sometimes it could be done by the elector, the legislatures themselves. I think, broadly speaking, so far as we can see, it was a fairly, uh, uh, meant to be a, a, a fairly popular system uh, um, to choose the president, but with the proviso that if you got the wrong type of candidate uh, in the view of the electors, that they could deliberate and set aside and to make sure that uh, among the possibilities, someone less dangerous might be chosen.
0: Fascinating. I want to pick up on that uh, thread in a moment, but Alex Kesar, you uh, have a soon-to-be released book, Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? I want to focus right now on what the framers were intending to achieve when they created it. What do you have to add or amplify to what James said about the original understanding of the Electoral College?
1: Well, I, I I think it's important to understand also that The framers collectively had a great deal of difficulty figuring out how to choose a chief executive or a chief magistrate. Um, In fact, in the course of the Constitutional Convention, they arrived at the title of president before they could figure out how to choose the president. They went back and forth throughout the summer. Um, And the interesting thing about the debates uh, was that the default position, in effect, was that Congress should choose the president. Um, and they kept kind of having straw votes on that, and then saying, nah, that's not a good idea because then you don't have separation of powers and there will be corruption. And it went back and forth, and finally, in the end, and I think I think we really—I mean, I, I'm less inclined to see the electoral college as the result of uh, grand theoretical perceptiveness. Um, you know, in in the end, it was left to uh, the committee on unfinished parts in in the last week of the convention to kind of come up with a scheme, and they came up with this scheme, and in a certain in a certain way. Um, Aside from the notion of it not being a, you know, a direct, a national direct popular election, what the structure of the Electoral College is, is it's a replica of Congress um, with each state having the same number of electors as it has representatives and senators. But it's a replica of Congress that meets only once. Um, and ha- does no other business, and thus the corruption issues, which were so feared, uh, are not present. I, you know, I think, uh, you know, even to, again uh, on this point that, um, you know, we should we should understand that this was an institution created. Well, uh, you know, I do not regard this as the greatest handiwork of the founding fathers. Nor, in fact, did did, did James Madison, who uh, thirty years later wrote that he thought that it showed the signs of haste and fatigue. Uh,
0: fascinating. Now, Hamilton was more positive about the Electoral College, and he in Federalist sixty eight said that. Uh, it's uh, the mode of appointment of the chief magistrate is almost the only part of the system of any consequence which has escaped without severe censure. I venture uh, to affirm if the manner of it be not perfect, it's at least excellent. James Caesar, you, you have a 1979 book about presidential selection which was so prescient that uh, several uh, political science professors told The Atlantic recently after the election, I expect Jim Caesar to take a victory lap around the country saying, I told you so. Because in your 1979 book, you talk about the framers' concern about uh, excesses of democracy and the emergence of demagogues. And you talk about the uh, filters that they introduced to try to prevent the election of demagogues. Was the Electoral College one of those filters? And was it supposed to prevent the election of de- demagogues? Tell us substantively about what it was supposed to do in, in choosing candidates.
2: Well, I believe it, I believe it was. And uh, the, the way you can uh, see and un- understand this uh, uh, fr- from the system itself is the, the mere fact that I don't think the system envisaged a campaign in the sense that we have it today. Campaigns <laughs> developed later. It wouldn't be a campaign because uh, uh, the final choice would be in the hand of these electors. So there might be some pre electoral movement by the candidates, but you wouldn't have a full open uh, debate or campaign. And uh, the, the idea so far as I can see it of the, of the founders is that uh, the type of person would be selected. As I said, it might be popular, but it would be based on the reputation and the record of service that those candidates, uh, provisional candidates had. So the ambition of all those in the United States that wanted to be president would be directed not towards being clever in a campaign, not towards an appeal in a campaign, not towards any form of popular ads or or demagogy, but really towards establishing a record that would say, boy, this person has gone further than the others and he or she should be president. That was the system uh, that they envisaged. And it was recreated a little bit later uh, in how we nominated candidates who also, when they were nominated by conventions, they rarely campaigned or never campaigned. They had to wait for the body to decide. So I would say uh, it was a kind of filter. um, uh, And uh, at one one point, the most frequent forms of election in the United States, especially with no 22nd Amendment, would be settling on how an incumbent had done. So it was a kind of judgment made on the incumbent. And there, uh, the the electors would... Uh, I'd sure be listening to the public to a large extent, but could could make sure that uh, a president would be continued in office if he uh, had done a good job.
0: Great. So, Alex, we've identified a bunch of original purposes for the Electoral College to provide the presidency with his own base of support, to supply a basis of popular legitimacy for the president, to block the election of demagogues, to channel the energy of major political figures. I'm, I'm summarizing from your comments and from the Interactive Constitution essays. Um, But but, but things didn't work out that way. And almost immediately after the contested election of 1800, the framers decided that an amendment to the electoral college system was necessary. Tell us what went wrong in the election of 1800 and, and, and what the reforms of the 12th Amendment were.
1: Well, for, for, yeah, no, I'm I'm happy to do that. I I I, I feel <laughs> I feel as a matter of of, of integrity, I, I do have to make a comment about the Hamilton quote that you uh, that you that you <laughs> read earlier, which is which is widely widely distributed. I mean, we have to remember, the Federalist Papers were polemics written by participants to try to get the Constitution ratified in New York. I I I think that to treat these as matters of high principle and truth is really misleading. Hamilton was right a polemic that was deeply misleading when he wrote that. The reason that there weren't that many objections to the electoral, electoral system—by the way, the electoral college is a phrase that does not appear in the Constitution. And the reason that, you know, Hamilton said there was relatively little criticism was because there were other issues that were much more important to people, like the absence of a Bill of Rights. Interesting. Thanks for um, that. I mean, I just, you know— Ham- Hamilton gets much too much credit or blame in some cases. You know, people. I, there have been a lot of people saying recently that electoral college was his creation, which is not true. Um, on, on the on the issue of the twelfth amendment, um, you know, it was uh, the crisis of eighteen hundred uh, of the election of eighteen hundred was, of course, uh, quite remarkable. The the constitution um, did not indicate that electors or anyone else would cast uh separately differentiated ballots for president and vice president um in effect what ended up in 1800 uh in addition to other machinations um was that uh the sort of jefferson and burr from the same alignment or quasi party at, at the time ended up with the same number of electoral votes um and clearly, the Democratic Republicans intended for Jefferson to be uh, the president and Burr the vice president. But in fact, that decision was going to end up in the hands of their bitter opponents, the Federalists. And yet, and they were bitter opponents. So the system had clearly malfunctioned. They had, as, as had been mentioned earlier uh, by Jim Caesar, they, they had not envisioned campaigns or they had not envisioned parties. They had a notion um, that the most qualified man in the country would become president, and the second most qualified man would be vice president. Um, but by 1800, par- proto-parties already existed. Uh, and, you know, another thing which happens in the election of 1800, of course, is that uh, Virginia shifts from distributing its, uh, elect- its electoral votes on a district basis to adopting quite apologetically winner take all uh, in order to help guarantee the presidency to Jefferson. when I say apologetically, the actual the legislation through which Virginia got rid of, the district system and moved towards uh winner take all contains a proviso saying, we, we really don't think this is a very good idea. Um, but as long as other States are doing winner take all, um, we, you know, we're, we're going to do it too, but we really think that there should be a national program of having electors by, by districts. So you have a, you have a joint crisis of both the manipulation of the allocation of electors. And then what you have, um, is, uh, this tie vote so that the election then goes to the house of representatives uh, where each state gets one vote um, it should be said also in, t- in terms of thinking about you know the original design of the constitution it seems from my reading of the evidence many of the framers and contemporaries thought that the election would often end up in the house of representatives others disagreed and thought that the electoral college would Uh, effectively deal with it um, uh, most of the time, but there were some people who thought that the Electoral College would in effect serve as a kind of nominating board forwarding the names of several candidates to to Congress. Um, In any case, what happens out of the uh, crisis of 1800 uh, and in subsequent years to summarize what's a very complicated set of gyrations is that there are movements afoot to amend the constitution and to change the presidential uh, selection process on two fronts one is to designate or differentiate separate ballots for president and vice president and the other is to mandate nationally the distribution of electors within each state by, uh, by district, which had been the position of Jefferson and of the uh, Democratic Republicans. In the complex partisan jockeying that unfolded in these early years, and as the Democratic Republicans are becoming ascendant and politically dominant, What happens is that they drop the district allocation of electors and end up embracing the other provision, which was designation or differentiation, and that becomes the Twelfth Amendment.
0: Uh, thank you so much for that uh, very well summarized history. James Caesar, what happened in the 19th century? We've said the framers didn't anticipate the rise of political parties. They thought that elections would end up in the House. In the 19th century, one election ended up in the House, that of 1824. There were two more elections where the loser of the popular vote won in the Electoral College, 1876 to 1888. In the 19th century, did the Electoral College operate the way the framers anticipated or not?
2: Well, uh, from the very beginning, after uh, the 12th Amendment, it became clear that the half of what the Electoral College was supposed to do namely to winnow down the candidates, was no longer part of the official institutions of government. It slipped from them to the political parties, which had no formal constitutional status, but really took over the function, in fact, de facto, of winnowing the candidates to 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 two. That was the, the idea of nominating. Nominating would, would bring them down to two. And that happened in a couple of the elections. The very interesting thing, however, is that parties, once they began in the 1790s quickly by the time of 1816 really ran out of business because one party won it all and we returned to a system with no parties that was the era of good feelings it was the crisis of the era of good feelings at least for martin van buren which led to the election of uh, uh, of 1824 and that was an election now without anyone or anybody nominating so you had five or six candidates or want to put it in modern terms, somewhat like the Republican primary this year, 17 guys running for the same prize, five or six running for the presidency of the United States, uh, no party nominations. And the result was that no one got a majority of the electors. And it went into the House of Representatives uh, for that one example of a, a choice made by that. One individual, Senator Martin Van Buren at the time, looked at the system and he says, the country is going to dissolve if this system remains in effect for the simple reason that these five or six candidates jostling against each other will each appeal as demagogues to various sections of the country. The country will probably split in a half. It isn't going to work. The country will will divide and end on this basis. So presidential selection came back as a fundamental issue. His resolution resolution of the problem was not a constitutional amendment, that was too difficult, but to reinstitute political parties so that we once again had a choice between, say, two candidates rather than five or six, and that the principles of those candidates would be partly regulated by the moderation of political parties rather than the ambitious desire of each individual to find some scheme or other which in the short run could get him elected president. So that's, in a way, why we have a party system as as distinct from parties. A party system was instituted really to fulfill that old function of the electoral college, which is to narrow people down and get responsible people to be uh, candidates for the presidency. Um, The crisis of uh, 1824 then represented really the collapse of the old system and an effort to reinstitute it in other terms. As for the other elections uh, that you mentioned, peculiar problems in each of them but i don't think that the issue of uh, who got the absolute majority vote uh, was really very much of an issue it wasn't raised very much in either of those it's uh, uh, the rules were uh, electors chosen by states no crisis resulted from that to any measurable extent in fact if you look at some of these elections in the late 19th century they were so close by the popular vote that it's doubtful that the statistics really say who won and uh, the the, the margins of difference in some of them were exiguous. The real issue always focused on the existing rules, who won the electoral votes. And uh, uh, it wasn't really, I suppose, until this century that this issue of a minority chosen, someone who didn't get the plurality, became in the minds of some such a crisis. It remains, a, for some, a, a big issue. For others, it's no big deal.
0: Very interesting. So, Alex Kesar, James Caesar has noted that one of the original purposes of the Electoral College uh, candidate selection drops out with the rise of the party system. Did the second one, that of filtering demagogues and exercising independent judgment, uh, persist? We do have uh, 157 so-called faithless electors who failed to vote for their party's designated candidates uh w- w- was was that an example of independent judgment being exercised or w- was the question of faithless electors pr- pretty well a, a a footnote
1: well the, the you know um, the question of of independent electors uh, and of whether there should be human electors. Um, Is raised very early on. Um, And, you know, and in fact, by by the 1820s, there's a very strong current of opinion that they should be disposed of. I mean, I don't I again, I don't I don't. But it's certainly the case. You know, by 1800, even maybe even by 1796, there is no independent judgment issued by the electors. And by the early 19th century, the electors are being mocked by political figures um, as being simply mailmen and messengers and utterly useless. Um, there are, and I think, I think this is something we should keep in mind in terms of, uh, satisfactions or dissatisfactions with this system. There was tremendous discontent with the presidential election system in the first third of the 19th century, five times the Senate passed constitutional amendments, uh, by the requisite two thirds majority, uh, to change the system. And in one year, uh, they lost in the house by only about four or five votes, um, and what, what, what the reforms would have done would have been to institute uh, district elections uh, r- rather than winner take all, would have pretty much gotten rid of human electors and would have changed the contingent election system um, to give less power to the small states. Um, now there are various reasons, including the, uh, historical contingency of the mess of 1824 that prevented those reforms from getting passed. And it's very difficult to, uh to amend the Constitution but this was this was an institution that was seen as working very poorly by large large currents of American political opinion I mean Andrew Jackson you know every year in his annual message su- suggested uh, doing something to get rid of it
0: interesting so James we're working through the original understanding of the college and whether those understandings panned out is it fair to say, do you agree with Alex's suggestion that really all of the original purposes of the college, both candidate selection and independent judgment, uh, basically failed to materialize by the 19th century and it was not achieving its original purposes?
2: Well, part of the purposes, as I said, were picked up really by the political parties. They became the filtering agent and the electoral college what it did was represent uh, uh, the distribution of, of votes among the different states and the, made the selection for, of the final the final selection for the president. So that function remained. It wasn't maybe exactly as intended. Uh, of course, uh, it, it became more popular. That's fully within the purview of the Constitution for the states to, in effect, uh, choose their electors to vote vote. For the popular favorite uh, of those within the state by popular election that was an evolution but uh, by no means uh, by, by every means open in the constitution and began very early so i think there's elements of continuity in uh, the, the electoral college and uh things that uh, as it were fell by the by the wayside and uh, that i think is a, is a point to uh, point to point out is that in all of our institutions, there's been dramatic evolution and change. Some of it's arguably more in line with the, what the framers had in mind, some of it may be evolving against, but uh, we can't say that the Electoral College stands out as the only institution that's operating in a different way than maybe was in the minds of those who gathered in Philadelphia.
0: Uh, thanks for that. So Alex, I guess now we need to begin to focus on whether there are arguments. Uh, uh, for retaining the Electoral College today, and I guess James uh, has identified one uh, in his in his separate statement on the interactive Constitution. He calls the Electoral College the fourth national institution created by the Constitution, going along with the Congress uh, and the uh, presidency. And he, he he mentioned that when elections are really close, as they were in the nineteenth century, and and it's tough to tell the statistical winner, then the Electoral College at least provides a. Clear winner is 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 that a what what do you make of that uh, argument and can you think of any other arguments for, for retaining the electoral college?
1: Um, I, I've I, I've always had trouble thinking of arguments in favor of <laughs> of, re, of retaining the the electoral college. I mean, you know, one can, uh, you know, it seems to me to be a fairly weak argument. I mean, it, it, it's true that you can get a kind of arithmetic clarity when the popular election uh, is. Uh, is extremely close um, and, the, elector- and, and, and the, elect- the electoral votes look fairly decisive. That gives you an arithmetic uh, clarity, but that only matters to the extent that people pay attention to it and are willing to adhere to it. Um, and I don't see any particular reason why um, the population would not grant the same legitimacy to uh, totals of national popular votes. Um, so I, you know, and, and there, there are so, and that said, you know, um, there are so many defects of the electoral college itself in its functioning and so many ways in which its legitimacy, uh, is questioned by the population as we see today, as we see these weeks, um, that, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I, I I just see the, that kind of argument as not, not taking us very far.
0: Okay, well, well, I'll ask you to enumerate those defects in a moment, but James, I guess now is the time for you uh, to offer the case for the Electoral College. And in, in, in addition to the providing arithmetic clarity, what are the other arguments uh, for retaining it today?
2: Well, one is uh, it's going to be very difficult to change. it; not impossible, but uh, so it's a good bit debate to have. But the probability of it doing so is low because a large number of the smaller states, uh, look favorably on this and through the amendment process, it will at least be difficult. I think that's a given. What arguments could be said to exist in its favor? It is an, uh, uh, an indicator of a bit of federalism in our system. That is uh, the, the units that uh, handle the, the vote and the electoral vote are states. And this is a union of states. They wrote the constitution in this way. It's not meant to be a, a, a national government where it's a one person, one vote for everything. Otherwise we wouldn't have a Senate and some of those who have called for the elimination of the Electoral College, some of those who are very consistent, have said, well, while we're at it, let's get rid of the Senate. Why should the uh, uh, people in Wyoming have so much of say over one of the branches of government c- compared to California uh, if it's just all of us thrown into one bucket? So the the Electoral College reflects uh, the uh, argument of states and the the. A point that states and geography really count, that representation in the United States is not a simple matter of, of numbers. Another point that I, I think is important is that uh, the elimination of the electoral college uh, uh, by uh, uh, states would mean immediately that we would have a national electoral system completely. It follows as night follows day that if a vote in Virginia is going to be the same as a vote in Alaska, you will have national standards for registration. You will have national standards for the timing in which the vote takes place, whether by mail or not mail. You will have the same standards all over and probably some sort of national administration to handle this. Something like uh, what we have when we go through the airports at TSA, you'd have a, a new administration. It would change completely the character of uh, our electoral laws and our electoral systems, whether for good or ill, it can be debated. But you have to realize the consequences of this change. They're dramatic and they represent a dramatic nationalization of uh, the whole American system, which I think is something that people should think about largely and clearly. Finally, I mentioned the fact that when you you look at the the, the map of this last election, uh, it it seems to speak in some ways. Yes, there are a lot of trees and a lot of rocks between uh, Manhattan and San Francisco. But the fact that you have so large a portion of the country uh, geographically speaking in one way indicates that geography should not merely be dismissed in this consideration. And the Electoral College represents that idea.
0: Uh, Beautifully summarized. So, Alex, uh, James has given us three arguments on behalf of the college. Uh, First, uh, federalism. Uh, Second, uh, the dangers of nationalizing our uh, electoral system. And third, geography matters. What is your response to each of those points?
1: Well, actually, let, 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 me, let, me, let me take up his, his starting point even before he made those points um, first, which is um, the cl- the two-part claim, one that it would be difficult to amend the Constitution, which I certainly agree, but the claim that it's because of the small states um, that, w- that we would encounter great difficulty. Um, the fact is, historically, that's just not true. Um, The fact is that you know, and and there, w- the numbers have been run on the roll call votes, and I've been doing a lot of research into a lot of the um, sort of individuals on this, and and the small states do not pose a particular barrier. Um, two two of the leading twentieth century advocates of a national popular vote were Senator Pastore of Rhode Island, and even more adamant was William Langer of North Dakota, one of the smallest states in the country. Um, so that I, I think I think the small state opposition may be really something of of, of a red herring in these political debates um, on the federalism question, I mean yes, I think it is true that this would represent a transfer um, of some authority to. Uh, the federal government with respect to elections, which would match the transfers of authority to the federal government in almost every other domain of life that have occurred over the last uh, 225 years. The fact is the country, the country has changed. It is also true that our, that our notions of what constitutes democracy has changed. The commonsensical part of one of the core problems, perhaps the core problem of the Electoral College uh, these days is that it does not conform uh, to people's everyday normal notions of democracy, which is that the person who wins the most votes gets the office. That's true, as far as I know, for every other office for which their elections are held in the United States from gubernatorial elections to student council presidents. Um, and as to, as to the geography question, I think that, um, uh, you know, I, I guess I would challenge that uh, in some way because uh, it's true that if you look at red and blue maps uh, just by state, um, the geography can look as though it has a kind of coherence. If you look at it by county, it looks extremely different. And what you see within the red states uh, are along the rivers and in the cities, and where there's a basically, and now, especially with their large black populations, you have blue areas whose actual votes for president are not being counted at all.
0: Great, so james, you've you've heard the good responses. first, uh, small states have advocated reform. second, that uh, we now expect more uh, popular democracy and third geography uh, points in different directions. your Your response
2: Well, uh, it is true that we've seen a centralization of uh, of politics in the United States. That's indisputable, but the the question is, do we want to take that to the absolute limits? and is that a good thing? or is now a a chance to to state the limits, what the limits are and they don't go that far. So uh, in in a way that that would be where the the debate is. I think these things still do matter. uh, And uh, the danger of over centralization Seems to be one of the great themes, at least uh, 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 of one of the parties uh, traditionally, maybe not this time, but traditionally in the United States. Should we uh, continue this uh, centralization of everything? What about federalism? What about more power being delegated uh, to to lower units? Isn't that a kind of democracy in and of itself? Isn't that the original idea of the union? So uh, I Agree with uh, that the, the issue should be joined, but it's not as if the fact, the mere fact that we've had centralization is a good argument for more centralization. It could just as easily have been an argument to say we've seen enough and let's uh, l- let's put a stop sign right here, or in a way reverse it in part. There's also the question uh, as we get into the technical elements of this, uh, the question of what really would replace the uh, federal college. Most people who have called for amendment, not all, have never said that it should merely be done by uh, the plurality vote simply. Most of the proposals have had something like this. The plurality winner of the popular vote should become president, but there's a threshold over which uh, we th- the plurality should exist, as we have in southern- some southern primaries. You don't want six or seven people running and someone becoming president with 29 percent of the population. So most proposals Uh, have included the idea of a a runoff election. If no candidate receives more than 40% of the popular vote uh, as a winner, then we'll have a runoff between the top two. So uh, there we enter into an entirely different system, entirely different system in which third and fourth and fifth parties would have a real incentive to enter, and people would have a real incentive to vote for them by virtue of the fact that they could throw the election into a second round and then play some role in negotiating in the second round There are lots of implications of the changes. So before we go in this direction, we at least have to have an idea of what really is the alternative to uh, the, what is the alternative proposal to the electoral college system?
0: Very interesting, Alex. So, of course, I want you to respond to James's uh, concern about what the alternative would be and ask you for what your preferred alternative is. But I think you may also have been holding in reserve some arguments against the electoral college that you talk about in your new, new book. So if you want to fire away... On that score, first, that would be great. (laughs) We're we're all waiting by the mics,
1: (laughs) right? Um, Well, let let, let me let me. I I I think I think I know what uh, what, you know. um, What you're referring to, and let me let me. You know, let, let let me let me state that argument from the book, and then and then move on to to James's sort of thought, thoughtful points about uh, concerns about it, what we would replace it with. But but to, to just uh, you know put this out there. Um, and again, you know, the the book's not out, but it will be, and this argument is prominent in it, um, which is that. Um, We also have, you know, understanding our history and it doesn't necessarily bear on what we should do today, but understanding our history, we really also have to understand that the preservation of the Electoral College um, in the 19th and in the 20th century into, you know, uh, until 1970, at least, is very much tied to the politics of race in the United States. Um, The fact is that... uh, The South and Southern Democrats opposed anything that would approach a national popular vote because it would have meant that white Southerners lost the electoral power that they wielded through first the three-fifths clause, and then after the Civil War and after 1890, what you might call the five-fifths clause, uh, in which each state uh, in the South got full representation in Congress and in the Electoral College for African-Americans, and yet they were not permitted to vote. In effect, whites were voting for them. Um, and it was for that reason that the South basically served as a veto faction, um, preventing reforms, um, until quite recently in our history. Indeed, if you look at, the time, uh, the episode when we came closest to abolishing the Electoral College and replacing it with a national popular vote, which was in 1969-70. You will find that it pa- an amendment to do, to do that passed the House overwhelmingly and was defeated in the Senate by a, filibus- by a filibuster led by Southern pro-segregationist senators. Um, so that, again, that, you know, that's not a reason to change it today, but it's a part of the history and a part of the reason why the institution has not changed earlier. Going back to the, um, to, to the, to the question of the present, and you may have to cue me about some of, uh, James's precise points, but I think, I think he is certainly right that There will be many if there is a national popular vote, there will be many implications of that. I think it will mean the standardization of procedures and perhaps of suffrage laws, um, which I personally do not regard as uh, as something uh, that that is that is unwelcome. But I think it is it is it is certainly true. I think most nation states have survived having national rules for elections and not having them done by province or state. But, you know, that's something that we can talk about. And th- there would be uh, there would definitely be implications. And then I'm forgetting a, a key point. Can you cue me on? Uh, yeah. He he was he was
0: concerned about the emergence of strategic third parties who would
1: try to. Uh, yeah. Yes. No. And, and that and that is something which could happen. But then again, um Strategic third parties are not absent in the current system, but in the current system they have to be geographically based. In fact, that's what George Wallace was in 1968, and it was the threat of the Wallace candidacy uh, and the fact that he might emerge as a kingmaker that gave some energy to the reform movement of the late 1960s and early 1970s. So I don't, I don't think it's an either-or. It's a question of: Are you worried about ideological third parties that are spread nationally, or? Are are you worried about regional third parties that could that could pick up some electoral votes?
0: James, let, let's talk more about the kinds of candidates who are emerging from the Electoral College and, and its alternatives. Uh, in your book about presidential selection, you talk about the concern about demagogues. So if the Electoral College isn't filtering them out, and today the parties aren't filtering them out, who is filtering them out?
2: Well, that's the issue. <laughs> the parties no longer—the <laughs> the, parties no longer—in their rules have a very filtering role to play, somewhat, but not 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 very much. And therefore, we've opened the system up to exactly what the founders were worried about, that you, and exactly what Martin Van Buren was worrying about. But that's not an issue of, of the electoral college anymore. That's a, a, uh, an issue more of the political parties. So wh- whatever problems we have there, we can learn from the concerns of the founders in their in their conception of presidential selection. They were also concerned, of course, as Martin Van Buren was, with the length of campaigns, the fact that now it seems that we're more interested in the campaigns than we are in governing. I do want to remind you that the election purpose of the election is to get a president, not to have a president in order to have a campaign. We've reversed this psychologically, uh, uh in our interest with campaigns, they are more interesting, but th- that's not what a constitutional system is. So I wouldn't attribute that problem, uh, to, to the, to the, uh, uh, electors. I would mention now, uh, w- one thing that, uh, maybe militates, uh, in favor of, uh, of a change or at least conception. The fact that, uh, with our current system with the number of so-called swing states which are fairly limited is that the campaign concentrates in only a few areas of the country and in the other areas where the outcome is known the candidates don't show up much unless it's to go out to Los Angeles and pick up uh, a lot of money, that is for Democrats, from people in Hollywood. But the candidates don't show up in, in many parts of the, of the country. It's irrelevant. They know how it's going to turn out. So in effect, it's, our national campaign is, is not fully national um, uh, when it comes down to the actual um campaigns and expenditures of resources in a presidential election. And that's a real issue that will change as geography changes. We've gone through a a curious period now in which they've been kind of locked into who's a democratic state and what's a Republican state. And then uh, six or seven or eight states in between that could change quite rapidly in the years uh, uh, to come. So that may not be a permanent problem, but it certainly is one that speaks in favor of thinking about the system we have now.
0: Great. So Alex James has argued for you uh, on the geography point also, although said that might change. But I, I, I want to, you know, really focus on this point about demagogues. Is it possible that if strategic third parties arose, that would make demagogues more or less likely to win?
1: Uh I think it's hard to say. I mean, I, I know that's a that's a that's a wishy-washy answer, <laughs> but uh, but in fact, I think it's true. I, th- I I I think I think it's I think it's difficult to say, and I think that, um, and I'm i I'm being very presentist in my response here. I think that there are other that there are shortcomings in other dimensions of our political culture that. Worry me more in terms of producing or tolerating demagogues than the str than the actual structure of the elections Um, You know, I'm I'm very worried about the use of uh, The use of media and the decline of truth as a um, In in political discourse, but I I don't know I just don't know whether Ch- plausible changes that we could make in the in the structure of elections or election processes would have much impact at this point
0: James you in 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 your book and in subsequent interviews identify a series of goals that a selection system should achieve promoting candidates with presidential character uh, the accession to power should be legitimate, the executive should, should have qualifications for office, and highly ambitious people should be prevented from taking office. I'm reading from a great interview with you in The Atlantic uh, uh, recently. Um, if the electoral college can't achieve that and uh, uh, a popular system can't achieve it, what electoral reforms could achieve those goals?
2: Uh, one qualification in that interview, I didn't say or didn't mean to say in that interview that we don't want highly ambitious people to become president. <laughs> That's like, uh, that's impossible. The idea is to channel the ambition in a certain direction. And that's what the founders had in mind. Channel the ambition in a w- instead of towards uh, being a good campaigner, towards establishing a record that would give you a reputation that the people would respect. So it's a it's a whole system of channeling ambition right at the top, which then signals all the way down, uh, what's the character of politics and how do you achieve uh, 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 political uh, progress as you, on your way up to the top? Um, well, we, we have uh, d- democracy. We've become more and more democratic in, in our systems. It's uh, very difficult now. There's a group of people in Washington um, who want to go back to something like the convention system. And I, uh, one of my earlier books, right after these reforms took place, was called Reforming the Reforms right then. That, that we are as far away now from uh, the reforms of the parties in the, the 1960s and 70s as Martin Van Buren, when he became president, was from the founding. We've gone through uh, at least 40 or 50 years. It's not easy to erase that. I would not recommend the same thing today. Systems of legitimacy uh, are such that even if we look at this last election and the results of this, the Democratic Party uh, is probably going to question rather than confirm the idea of superdelegates. The Republican Party, with its uh, uh, current uh, 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 victor, is uh, no way in favor of limiting the democracy in the selection process. We have the results of democracy, and uh, no easy change comes from that. We have to live with the problems of democracy. And as for the some of the consequences of, uh, of truth and discourse, and uh, these in some ways are causes of what we have now, but they're also consequences of what we have now. When people campaign for office in a certain way, that sets a standard of uh, what's considered uh, good campaigning and rational campaigning, or at least uh, successful campaigning. So there's always an interaction between culture and institutions, which no one has been able to uh, figure out with scientific clarity.
0: Wonderful. Well I think it's time, gentlemen, for closing arguments. This. Uh Superb debate has uh, taught me more about the Electoral College than I expected to learn, and it's just been uh, marvelous. Uh, so, what I want you each to do now is as succinctly and uh, eloquently as possible uh, sum up the arguments for and against uh, retaining the Electoral College. And, uh, uh, Alex, uh, I think uh, we're, we're going to begin uh, with you. Uh, please give us the arguments uh, against the Electoral College.
1: I think I think the core arguments are 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 fairly straightforward. Uh, The first is that a, a national popular vote would be more democratic. It would avoid the circumstance that we have today, where someone takes office who did not win the largest number of votes, which is my standard, and I think the standard of most of us of what a democratic outcome of an election would be. I think that is really the central argument. And I think this, I think a second argument, um, which has been referred to, is very important, which is that the current structure is deforming our electoral campaigns and focusing them entirely on the so-called states and paying very little attention to what's going on elsewhere in the country and also limiting the opportunities for civic and public engagement uh, by people who do live uh, elsewhere in the country i mean i you know i live in massachusetts i have students in massachusetts in an election um you know year they say what can they do well actually this year I could say well go to New Hampshire because uh, there's a competitive election there but otherwise what do you say to young people write a check or drug you know quit quit your job and and move to Ohio if you want to have a role <laughs> in the uh, in in the in the presidential election so I think that you know the core uh, I, I think, I think those are just simply core virtues of a national popular election. And I think that that's why that's the system that's used in uh, every other uh, democratic country in the world.
0: Thank you so much for that. And James, uh, last word to you. Please give us the arguments in favor of retaining the Electoral College.
2: First thing uh, I wanted to say is that uh, we, we don't know who would have won the national vote if we had had a system of national vote. That argument should be put aside. The candidates competed under this system. They spent their resources and time under this system. It's impossible to say who the real national vote winner is, as I'm sure everyone realizes. Uh, You you can't change the rules. The strategies change with the rules. Still, there is this question of, of, uh, uh, in principle, in the future, whether it's better to have a national vote winner than the system we have. I um, am very reluctant uh, to change uh, in any case. Uh, A constitutional principle and a constitutional institution, especially when I don't see the concrete alternative before me and the effects that it could have. I do see some dangerous effects of of change of this. It's one step down the road of making majority rule, national majority rule, the the principle simply, not just for this office, but why uh, should we have a Senate and why should the votes of a minority of uh, states, um, a minority of people in smaller states have uh, legitimacy over uh, the, uh, 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 the outcome of what would everything would be based on population? It's not a, 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 a system of uh, majority rule in the states. That's the way it was formed, founded, and that's the way I'd like to see it continued. I'm especially concerned about the nationalization of, ev- of everything. We've gone far enough down this road. The nationalization of, po- of politics in every way. Who's the elect? What constitute the election? What are the rules of electorate uh, of of eligibility? The entire system would swing to this. And finally, I do worry about uh, th- this uh, problem of changing disincentives towards having moderate parties to the extent that we have them and opening this up to something unknown of a cascade of parties in a two uh, tier election, as they've had in other countries with, I think, very poor results.
0: Wow. James Caesar and Alex Kaiser, thank you so much for an illuminating, surprising, and genuinely educational discussion of the arguments for and against the Electoral College. I've been involved in several of these discussions recently, and this one has been by far the best. Alex, James, thank you so much for joining.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jim.
0: Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook, Twitter, and using Constitution CTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org or me, jrosen, at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Be the People's a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. We rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. That mission, ladies and gentlemen, dear We the People listeners, is more urgent now than ever. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit ConstitutionCenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.